0: Few things in life are more frightening, I think, than being a parent and not knowing if your child's okay. I remember, uh, Jeannie and I were at a, a mall and um, our little three to four year old son disappeared, and we panicked, spent It seemed like forever looking for him. It was probably 10 minutes. um, But I'll tell you, there was wonderful relief when we found him. It was just scary for us. Many of you have experienced times like that. I, I, I grieve for those parents of Virginia Tech students who went through a horrible experience of wondering, hearing about what's going on and just wondering if their children were okay longing to hear that phone call, I'm okay, Mom, I'm okay, Dad. Fortunately, most of them heard that. There were too many that didn't. But when you do finally hear, I'm okay, <laughs> there's incredible relief at that, isn't there? Finally, they're okay. My child's okay. Well, today we begin a new book, a new study, the book of First Thessalonians. And that sense of relief, my child's okay, my baby's okay, is really what drives the book, is what caused Paul, the Apostle Paul, to write this book. Now, Paul was not married. He didn't have a family. His family were the people of God that he'd invested himself in. And he wrote the book of First Thessalonians because he was so relieved He'd been very worried and concerned, and finally he got the news that they were okay. So he wrote the book of First Thessalonians to say, I am so glad you're okay. I'm so excited you're all right, and I want to encourage you in your faith. Let's talk about why he was so worried. Let's uh, explore kind of the context, the setting of this book as we begin. He was so worried because he'd been... ...on his second missionary journey. In this map you probably have one in the back of your Bibles... ...but this purple line is Paul's second missionary journey. And he traveled through where he'd gone before on his first journey... ...and then he came across Asia. And at that point the book of Acts chapter 16 tells us... ...that he wanted to go into Bithynia up here farther north... ...to share the gospel... But it says the Holy Spirit prevented him from going. Now, we don't know how that happened, how he prevented him. But for the Apostle Paul, it was hard. He, he wanted to go there, but he was prevented. So he was trying to figure out, Lord, what do you want me to go next? What's your plan? So he came down to Troas here, and he was trying to figure out, Lord, what do you want? And it says in Acts chapter 16, and I'll read just uh, briefly... A couple of verses from Acts chapter 16 as we set this context. Verse, um, verse 8, it says, Passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision. Immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So they headed out. Macedonia is this whole section, the northern part of Greece today. The southern part is Achaia, and that will be talked about later in our passage. So the main cities of Macedonia are Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. So Paul says, okay, this is a message from God. I'm headed to Macedonia. He was following the lead of the Lord. He went to Philippi, and if you've read Acts 16, you know what happened there. It was difficult. He was persecuted. He and Silas ended up being thrown into jail. It was a difficult time, but God did a miracle and opened the doors, and the Philippian jailer was going to kill himself, but God got a hold of his heart. Paul said, we're still here. We haven't left Shared the gospel with him, and the jailer and his entire family came to Christ. But it was a difficult time. It was persecution. Paul was then run out of town. He had to leave. So he went to Thessalonica, which was the biggest city in all of Macedonia. It was about 200,000 people in that day. It was a huge city, dark, difficult place to go. But he went, and we're told in Acts 16 that he shared the gospel there. Acts 17 shared the gospel there, and he taught in the synagogues for three successive Sabbaths, three Saturdays in a row. And then the Jews got upset because when there was a synagogue, there were the Jews, and then there were God-fearers that gathered around. These were Gentiles that were thirsty to find out about God. Well, it says, as Paul was sharing the gospel, not many Jews came to Christ, but a whole lot of (laughs) God-fearers. And you can imagine how the Jews felt about that. And these are the ones that they'd been nurturing and were supporting the synagogue, and suddenly they'd become Christians. And they created a riot and ran Paul out of town. So Paul was actually only in Thessalonica for a very brief time. If you follow Acts, it sounds like he was only there for about three weeks. might have been a little longer, but he was not there very long. So he ran to Berea, and there at Berea he began teaching the gospel, And in Acts 17, we're told that the Jews there were more noble than the ones in Thessalonica, verse 11 of chapter 17, Acts 17. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So many believed. But. When the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. These Thessalonican Jews were a pain. (laughs) They even went to the next town, chased Paul out of there, and Paul ended up running down to Athens, all the way down here. And he's sitting in Athens, and he had to be thinking about the ministry he'd had in Macedonia. God had called him there by vision, right? And think how it had gone. He'd been run out of three towns, hadn't had a chance to really establish the churches there, deeply concerned about how they were doing, knowing that especially in Thessalonica, they were experiencing incredible persecution. And he's thinking, these are my children. How are they doing? Are they okay? Are, are they falling apart? And I wonder if you've ever felt that way, felt like you were following God. God clearly told you, step out in this new ministry, step out in this new situation, take on this new job, step out in this relationship. And you found when you did so, it didn't go very well. I think Paul must have felt some of that. And you begin to think, well, maybe I didn't hear the Lord or maybe, Lord, what are you doing here? This doesn't make sense to me. I thought if I followed you, things would go better. That happens to all of us at times. But I think we need to remember that God is a big God who has a bigger plan than we could ever imagine. And that He loves us enough to take us into difficult situations. He takes us there because it's those very situations that will sharpen us and round off our rough edges and form us and shape us into the very life of Christ. So it probably is God's will that you ended up there. It just didn't turn out like you wanted. So you need to put your trust in the Lord and realize He's still working even in the midst of that. So Paul's really concerned. We're told in 1 Thessalonians as he writes to them in chapter 3, he says this, verse 1, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer... We thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. Then down in verse 5, he says, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer. Sound like a parent who's concerned? (laughs) I couldn't stand it any longer. I had to know how you were doing. I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor." Would be in vain. Paul's deeply concerned. He's worried about them, like a parent. But then notice verse 6 of chapter 3. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live. We really live if you stand firm in the Lord. So Paul wrote this book, and it's full of joy and thankfulness that they're doing okay, that their faith hasn't been lost. In fact, it's actually been growing, even in the midst of the persecution and the struggle they're having. So as we go through this book of 1 Thessalonians, we'll get a lot of encouragement about our faith, also some challenges, some encouragements that maybe we're doing okay But God wants us to excel still more, to press on in our faith, to trust him, to walk with him in a deeper and deeper way. So let's begin the book, starting in verse 1. Paul and Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Paul, Silas, Timothy were the ones traveling around with Luke probably and maybe some others but at least those four who went into that whole area of Macedonia. And so they write this letter from Athens or maybe they've gone on to Corinth by this time but they're writing this letter to say, wow, we're thankful for what God's doing. So this is the normal greeting in the New Testament style of letters to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. The normal greetings in those the in that day, the Greek greeting and the Hebrew greetings were grace and shalom, charis and shalom, grace and peace. So he combines those two as a reminder, I think, that the church is a combination of people from all kinds of backgrounds. And he greets them with that and he says to the church in Thessalonica, Church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's significant. He doesn't begin a book, another book that way. He's reminding them that they are a creation of God, that they exist as a church in this difficult place because God has put his hand on them and has worked in them in a powerful way. And he says in this book and in the next book, 2 Thessalonians that we'll get to, over and over again, he says, in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. He uses it more in these books than any other set of books. Why is that? He wants to remind us that if you've come to Christ and the Lord has called you out, that he is Lord and he wants to be Lord of your life. It should make a difference in your, in your life. And so that's really a theme of this book as he goes on now to say in verse 2 and 3, Again, this is the introduction to the whole book. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. So he says, I'm so thankful for you. And what's he thankful about? He says, because I've seen God working in your life, particularly in three things. Faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. Those are foundational to the whole New Testament world of what it means to be a Christian, but even more so to these books. You see, I think that's a theme in First Thessalonians. You want to summarize the whole book? <laughs> he says, "Live out, live in faith, love, and hope. And notice he's talking about an active faith, an active love, an active hope. It's, it's a faith that prompts you to work, prompts you to say, Lord, I believe in you, therefore I am going to follow you, to trust you. It's a love that's, that prompts you to labor for the sake of others. You say, Lord, you prompting, you're prompting me to love others in a way that I'm laboring for their sake pouring out my life, dying to myself for the sake of others. And it's an active hope that causes you to endure in the midst of suffering that prompts you to endure, to hang in there when life's tough because you know Jesus is coming back. And that's a major theme in this book. Jesus is coming back. Therefore, I can endure whatever I'm going through now. These three, faith, love, and hope, are central to this entire book but again, they're central to our whole faith. John Calvin said these 3 are a brief definition of true Christianity. So as we study through these books, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians in coming weeks, I encourage you to keep asking yourself, how am I doing in my faith? How am I doing in loving others? How am I doing in hope? Is it helping me to endure? So these are key. So it's really an introduction to the whole book. But now he goes on to what we want to focus on the rest of our time together this morning, which I think are evidences that God has chosen you. Because Paul says, man, I am so thankful. And I know, he says in verse 4, I know, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. I know God's chosen you. I know you're His. I know you're part of the kingdom of God. And he goes on to give some evidences of why he knows that about them. Because they're beginning to live differently. They're beginning to live differently. Now imagine an old friend coming to you who's been single for a lot of years and he comes to you and says, Hey, guess what? I just got married. Well, you'd be anxious to hear about this. you know. This would be a big change in this guy's life. But imagine, as you asked him, well, tell me how you're doing, what it's like. And everything he describes is exactly how he lived before. He's hanging out with the same friends, doing the same things, living by himself, handling his finances on his own. Everything is exactly the same as it was before. You'd think something was wrong, right? (laughs) Because the reality is marriage changes everything. All of a sudden, you have to take this other person into account. And when you do that, you realize, I've got to think differently because I'm bonded with this other person. You handle your finances differently. You're living together. You're learning to cooperate. You're learning to blend your life with them. That's as it should be because marriage changes everything. Well, I think that's Paul's sense here as he's thinking about coming to Christ. Coming to Christ should change everything. You're still the same person to some degree, but yet if Jesus is in you, the Holy Spirit's indwelt you, then life begins to be very different. You begin to think differently and act differently and live differently and make different choices. Everything is different. And Paul says in verse 4, I am so thankful because I know God's chosen you because I see what's different. Again, not necessarily what they've done, but what God is working out in them. So let's look at these evidences, these four evidences that I see in this passage about what is different. And as we do that, I encourage you to ask yourself this morning, think about your own life and say, are these evidences in me? Is God at work in my life? Do I see changes? Do I see changes? Because to be honest, folks, the scripture makes it clear that in any church, and certainly one this size, there's going to be people who attach themselves to the church, who think they're believers, but who don't have the living life of Christ in them, and so their lives aren't different than they were before. So I just ask you to prayerfully consider these and ask, are these part of my life? So let's look at these first in verse 5. I believe an evidence that Paul sees he's so excited about is the Spirit's power in them. Notice what he says, verse 5. For our gospel, I, I know you've been chosen by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only. NIV says simply with words. In word only. But also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Notice what he says. I know God's chosen you because the, the gospel did not come to you in word only. Now, let me say something here. A lot of us, maybe most of us come from a tradition that says, you know what? If you're saved, you can have assurance of your salvation. And the way you have assurance of your salvation is if you can pinpoint the day that you prayed and asked Jesus into your life. And if you prayed that prayer, you can have absolute assurance that you're saved. Many of us come from that, that kind of tradition. But you know what? I don't believe that's biblical. I don't. I think our assurance comes from what we see today in this passage in 1 John and, and other things. The true assurance of your salvation comes From the evidence of God beginning to live his life through you. Because if God is in you, you can't contain it, folks. It's like putting too much detergent in the washing machine. (laughs) And I've seen it happen. (laughs) It spills over. You can hold the lid down, but it still spills over. If the Holy Spirit's in you, it's going to spill over. You can't avoid it. And so that's what Paul says and the New Testament reveals is you want assurance? Look for the spilling over. <laughs> look, for, look for Jesus beginning to live his life through you and, and look for the work, the evidence that he's in you. Because you can't be a Christian in word only. You may have said the words, but if those words were truly God's choosing of you, then there will be evidence. There will be a spilling over. So we need to ask ourselves, are we Christians in word only? Well, what does a bubbling spirit look like? What does the power of the spirit look like in our lives? I like Nigren, He's a commentator, says, The gospel is not the presentation of an idea, but the operation of a power. When the gospels preach, the power of God is at work for the salvation of men, snatching them from the powers of destruction and transferring them into the new age And if that power is evident, it will begin to change the way you look at life. Now, Paul doesn't say much about that here. We'll find out more as we go through the book. But he does say this. I know it didn't come to you in word only, but with power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, is my translation, or full assurance. That word really means you see the truth and you embrace it. Do you realize it takes the power of the Holy Spirit for you to do that? And he's saying, Wow, you Thessalonians had a full assurance. You were living in the world, going your own direction, and you heard the truth, and you fully embraced it. You said, Wow, this is reality, and you began to live that way. That is the power of the Holy Spirit at work. He's not so much talking about you know, weird phenomenon or anything, though the Spirit can do anything He wants. But a clear evidence that God is in you is that you begin to embrace reality, embrace the truth of the Scriptures, and you want more. Think about C.S. Lewis. Many of us enjoy his writings. If you ever ever read um, his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, some of his other writings, he talks about how he came to faith, and he says, "God drug me in the door, kicking and screaming." That's how he came to Christ. It wasn't his choice. He didn't want to be a believer, but he became so convinced that it was true that he realized he'd become a believer already. (laughs) Full assurance. You see, that's what God does. He he does something in your life to change you by the power of the Spirit. I think I've shared the story of my, my mom before, but she was 63 years old and She hadn't been able to forgive my dad for some things. He'd really hurt her. And she wanted to forgive him, but had been unable to. And one day she called me and said, guess what? I finally was able to forgive your dad today. I said, what happened? She said, I received Jesus into my life. And her life changed. Believe me, it was dramatic. Her whole orientation changed. The power of the Spirit was at work in her, enabling her to change and forgive and let go of resentments in ways that prove the power of God, clear evidence that God was at work in her. So Paul says, Wow, I'm so excited. I know God's in you because I've seen the power of the Spirit changing the way you look at life, embracing the truth. Second evidence he gives is in verses, the end of 5 through verse 8, is a changed lifestyle. Notice what he says just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. And that word sounded forth, trumpeted forth, echoed forth, The Greek word is where we get our word echo. It echoed forth. It resonated. Everybody heard it. They heard about your faith, how God had changed your lives, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Paul says, man, I know you've been chosen by God because you began to imitate us and the Lord Jesus. You see, he's saying... You wanted to live differently. And you said, whoa, I want to live as a Christian, but I don't know how to live as a Christian. What do I do? Let's do what Paul's doing (laughs) and Silas and Timothy. And let's follow them. And, oh, they're talking about Jesus and they're teaching us. Let's let's imitate him. And their life began to change because they were looking to change. They were looking to live as a a member of the kingdom of God, not a a member of the world. You see, their life began to change. And it says some very practical ways in which they began to change. It says they received the word in much tribulation. They embraced the word. They had a passion for God's truth. We want to hear more. And they're getting attacked for meeting together as Christians. And they're saying, that's not going to stop us because we want to hear more. We want to receive the word. We want to hear it. You see, their lifestyle began to change and they began to look for ways to hear the Word. They had a passion for it. That's evidence that God is really in you because you have a thirst to know Him and to hear from Him. And then secondly, it says they received the Word in much tribulation with joy. That's a sure sign, a change in your life that only God can do where you begin to have joy in the midst of trials. A deeper joy, it doesn't mean you like trials. If you like trials, you're nuts. (laughs) But a deeper joy says, wow, this hurts, but God, I know you're working in this. You have a confidence that God is working, and so you have a deeper joy that, Lord, you're going to use this for good in my life. A Christian who continues to have a lot of anger and bitterness at the difficulties in their lives, I have to wonder if the Holy Spirit's in them because the Holy Spirit always prompts us to begin to see God's hand in the midst of it, even if we don't understand it, and begin to have a deeper joy in the midst of the pain and difficulty. He says, Wow, I've seen that in you, and that's awesome. That's exciting. And he says that the word of the Lord has sounded forth from them. Others heard about their change in lifestyle, all around How did they hear about it? There was no TV, there was no radio. The only way they could hear it? Gossip. Gossip. Now the Bible says gossip's not a good thing, but this is holy gossip. <laughs> OK <laughs> That's what John Stott calls it, which I really like. <laughs> holy gossip, in other words, the kind of gossip that says, "Did you hear what God's doing up in Thessalonica?" Did you hear about those guys and they're continuing to meet even though they're being thrown in jail and all these difficulties are happening and they're preaching the word and did you hear that they're traveling around now and telling others about it and they're seeking to build up others in the faith and wow, did you hear what God's doing? That's holy gossip. That's good. (laughs) That's what we ought to be doing, telling others about what God is doing. Their life began to change. They began to live differently. They began to imitate Paul and the Lord. They began to let go of the old lifestyle, the old things, the sin that they'd hung on to. And they began to seek to meet with other believers and love with compassion those who were hurting and wanting to serve others and all these things. That's evidence that God is spilling over. (laughs) He's being poured out through your life. And so Paul says, man, I'm excited. I know you're God's because I can see your lifestyle beginning to change. And it's visible to other people. Third, verse 9, he says, if you're in Christ, you're going to have a new allegiance, a new master. Notice what he says in verse 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. They turn from idols to God. You see, everybody's serving something, right? Everybody's serving idols. And let me give you an example of some modern idols. Again, this is from John Stott. Modern missionaries, especially in areas of animism, which is termed traditional religion, know all about the power of idols and the spirits which are believed to lurk behind them. A tribe's traditional idols have a tremendous hold over people's minds, hearts, and lives. But the more sophisticated idols, that is, God's substitutes, of modern secular cities are equally powerful. Some people are eaten up with a selfish ambition for money, power, or fame. Others are obsessed with their work, or with sport, or television, or are infatuated with a person, or addicted to food, alcohol, hard drugs, or sex. Many things are called idolatry in the Scriptures because they demand an allegiance which is due to God alone. Now, we all naturally serve something because as human creatures, we naturally have idols that we worship. And all those things he mentioned there are things that we naturally in our fallenness worship. But he's saying if you've come to Christ like the Thessalonians you turned from those idols to serve a living and true God and notice to serve a living and true God. In other words you begin to live with under a new master, to follow a new master, to seek him, to do what he says, not what your idols say. And again he says everybody can see it. It's obvious in your life. You have a new master. This means that as you live as a Christian, You begin to say, no, I'm not going to live for that. And, Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, I want to follow you. Lord, you're my master. I have a new allegiance now. I want to trust you. Like my friend Mike, who was in a local company, moving ahead very well. He got moved into management, was doing well in management, very successful. But he found the demand for hours kept expanding. And he realized it was hurting his marriage and he didn't have opportunity for service and ministry. He began to seek the Lord and the Lord was telling him, I'm your master. You need to make a change here. (laughs) So he went to his boss and said, you know what, it's not good for me to be in management. I need to step down so I can control my hours and put my family first and my ministry first. So he stepped out of management into a lower position. This just happened recently. Into a lower position and now someone who was under him before is now his boss. Now the world would say, that's crazy. But if you're serving your new master, you will do what he says, even if it costs you from a worldly point of view. You have a new allegiance. You want to follow him. And that begins to be obvious by the way you live your life so we need to ask ourselves as people look at our lives who or what would they say is our master as people look at our lives who or what would they say is our master sobering isn't it to consider but i think it's worth considering the fourth evidence that Paul gives for the Thessalonians, he says, I'm excited. I know you're, you've been chosen by God because I see that you have a secure hope. Verse 10, you've turned from idols to serve a living and true God and, verse 10, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. See, as a believer, you begin to change, and you begin to change your hope. What are you putting your hope into? And you begin to have a secure hope. Hope in the Bible, though, is not wishful thinking the way we talk about hope in our culture. It's not, gee, I hope, I hope it's a nice day tomorrow. I hope it gets warmer. I hope this. You know, it's just kind of wishful thinking. Hope in the Bible is always something anchored. It's secure. It's absolute. It's more like, gee, I hope the sun comes up tomorrow. And I'm going to live my life accordingly. I'm going to plan on the sun coming up, and I'm going to live my life as though that's true, right? Because I'm really confident it's going to happen. (laughs) Well, that's the way hope is in the Bible. I am so confident that Jesus is coming back to rescue me, that I don't have to try to rescue myself here. I don't have to try to fix my life. I don't have to try to get my hope met here. I can realize he's coming back so I can live fully for him. Now, this world destroys hope, doesn't it? It destroys hope. It's a dark world. We have events all the time like Virginia Tech. We have struggles and difficulties in our lives. It's not getting better. Evil reigns in so many hearts. There's destruction and pain. And every one of us have bodies that are beginning to deteriorate and fall apart. And the end of that will be death. This world doesn't provide hope, does it? It doesn't. It's a hope destroyer. But Paul says real hope for a believer is that Jesus is coming back and that affects the way we live today. It was visible in the Thessalonians' life and it can be visible in our lives. And this book, this whole book of Thessalonians, will help encourage us to put our faith in Him, to wait for Him, to trust that Jesus is coming back and therefore I can live free of the trappings of the world because my hope is in Him. The Thessalonians were persecuted, but they were full of hope because they believed that Jesus was coming back. Paul's thankful because he sees real evidence in Thessalonians' life that God has chosen them because the life of Jesus, the Spirit, is spilling out in how they live. They have a changed lifestyle, the power of the Spirit's, Evident in their lives. They have a new master and they have a secure hope that's changed the way they live. Well, we want to take communion together now because we want to celebrate what God has done in changing us through Christ. It's what He's done. He chose us and He gave us Jesus to set us free. But as we do that, I want us to really think about our own lives, and examine ourselves. Paul says something, and we don't read it very often, but I want to read it this morning. In 1 Corinthians 11, as he gives us the Lord's Supper, he describes how Jesus broke the bread, passed around the cup, described that. And then he says this in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore... Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the the blood of the Lord. But a person must examine themselves, and in so doing he or she is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For whoever eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, in other words, have died. He says there in Corinth that people were not examining their lives. They were just taking communion as a social thing and they weren't examining their hearts whether they were truly of the faith and trusting God. This is a very sobering passage for us, isn't it? But I encourage you now as we pass out the bread to really examine yourself and say, Am I truly of the faith? Have I truly let God work in my life? Is he truly spilling over? It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you have it all together. It just means you're in process and you've seen how God has begun to change your attitudes, to change your heart, to begin to live his life through you. So I encourage you, we're just going to have silence as the bread is being passed out, and I encourage you to examine your own heart before the Lord, whether that's true of you. If you're not sure, I encourage you to just pass the elements by. And then come talk to an elder, to a staff person, somebody you trust in the faith. Come talk to me. Talk to somebody afterwards so that you can have assurance that you're really his. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, Christ's body. You. And as the cup is being passed, I encourage you to, like Paul, thanked God for the Thessalonians. Thank God for the evidence you see of God working in your life. Thank you that he is working in your life, pouring his life in you and through you. And thank God for those others in your life that have impacted you because you've seen the Lord in them as well. In the same way, Paul writes, Jesus took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant, a new way of living, a new life he's given us. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Come, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your life that was given for us, for your blood that was poured out as a picture of the new life that you pour into us. I pray, Lord, that we would submit our lives to you, surrender and let you be Lord and let you spill your life out through us. And if there's anyone here that isn't sure that maybe is a Christian in word only, I pray, Lord, you'd bring conviction of spirit so that they would turn and really find life fully in you, that you'd invade their lives, that your life might spill over.